Welcome to Buy Sci-Fi Bite-Sized Finance. I'm Kelly Brothers. I'll be your host serving up some of the most succulent stories from our region about people, places, and things that impact our community and your financial well-being. I'm sure there will even be a few tasty surprises here and there when the recipe is right. Our goal is to have you learn, think, even laugh a little bit, all calorie-free. I know you'll enjoy what we're delivering right to your kitchen table or dining room or, sir, will you be eating in your car? Wherever you choose to listen. Welcome to Bite Size Finance for another week. You can find us on wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on KFBK every Sunday at three o'clock. And on this Sunday, we have the great honor of having on Roger Dreyer, one of the most distinguished attorneys in the greater Sacramento area with an incredible history of various landmark cases involving everything from fraud verdicts in Sac County to claims against Mastercraft Boats, Ford Motor Company, not to mention work for the Oakland Raiders and also the Sacramento Kings and the We for the We case, which uh, we'll talk about a little bit as well. But he has a just an incredibly distinguished career. And Roger, I can't thank you enough and appreciate you coming on Bite Size Finance. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Kelly. I'm happy to be here. So, Roger, let's start off with, if you don't mind, let's go to your family history because I love the astounding story about your father, about what he accomplished at a very young age in life, and how you really didn't know about it until the final days of his life, and how that has provided inspiration for you even today. Tell us about your dad. My dad was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, Latvian Jew, immigrant, or a son of immigrants, was an orphan by the time he was 12, self-taught tennis player, and accomplished enough that he ended up getting a scholarship so that he could go to college, and he went to the University of Missouri, which at that time had a pretty good tennis program, and put himself through school, and that was 1941. And war broke out. Like all great Americans, he joined the military, the army. And because of his background, they assigned him to the Army Air Corps, dispatched him off to Texas to become a bombardier. And at that time, he learned how to operate the most sophisticated piece of equipment that the American military had called the Norton Bombsite. And because of the catastrophic losses that the American Army Air Corps was suffering during World War II, they also trained him to be a navigator, whereas the B-17s that were flying out of England had 10 crewmen. They just were running out of crew. They had nearly 30% losses of airmen during the air war. And so by the time he was ready, he was had his wings both as a navigator and a bombardier, and he went to North Africa, flew out of North Africa, and flew 41 combat missions and a B-17. And because of his abilities with the Norton bomb site, he ultimately got promoted to lead bombardier. So he's leading literally hundreds of B-17s across the Mediterranean, across Italy, the Alps, and into southern Germany, and into southern France. 
And so, and, and, and I should point out here, Roger, because you and I have discussed this. If for any of you who are watching and enjoying Masters of the Air on Apple TV, <laughs> that was Roger's dad. I mean, that is exactly the environment yeah. in which your father, the only thing I'll question I'll ask is, according to the show anyway, once you hit 25 successful flights, you were done, but he, he had 41. Yeah, the, 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 the show is remarkable and the book is remarkable as well for its accuracy. And it, it's been hard, as I, as I mentioned, it's hard to watch because it's like watching my dad. But in England, it was very fierce because they were flying more missions and quickly. And the, you know, my dad, when he eventually told me about this in the last two weeks of his life, the, the things that resonated with him the most, the things that I could see in his face, you know, fear, was the ACAC and being captured. Those are the two things that that resonated with him still, you know, late in his 70s. But they, the guys that were flying out of North Africa, they viewed as having easier missions because they were flying and bombing in Italy and France, and they weren't, but they weren't quite as arduous as the ones in the Germany, for sure. So they had to fly 50 missions. And he was shot down on Christmas Day in 1943, blown out of his aircraft over a bomb run. So he had a full payload of bombs. And when they got hit, they got hit twice. And what's incredible, and you see it in the show, is they interview these guys after they come back from their runs. And they called it interrogation. But what they were trying to do was count parachutes and count and find out what happened to airplanes. Because it was all... The only way they could track them was by what they saw. So he was literally blown out of the front of his airplane because he was a bombardier. One of the few times he wore his parachute because to get over the Norton bomb site, he couldn't have his parachute on. So he would take it off over the bomb run. But this was a particularly bad bomb run in southern Germany, and he knew it was going to be bad. So he wore his, his parachute, and he was knocked unconscious, came conscious, flying through the air, too close to the ground, landed, got his parachute pulled out, but landed, but broke both legs badly. And he was discovered by a farmer with a pitchfork and had a pitchfork into his chest and throat when he was rescued, as you would call it, by the SS because they saw the parachutes. And they loved to get their hands on the bombardiers and they wanted to interrogate them, different kind of interrogation about the Norton bomb site if they would get people to talk. And he ended up being operated on because at this time in late 43, supplies were running short, no medication, both legs were reset. And ultimately, he spent a year and a half in prison war camp. And when he was liberated by Patton on April 27th, 1945, he weighed 105 pounds. Oh, man. But you'll like this. He was a journalism major at, at Missouri, and that's all he ever wanted to do is write. And so when he was a prisoner of war, what he did is he did the camp newspaper. He created the camp newspaper, and he published it every week. And he said it's the greatest thing he ever did. And he had all these guys, these writers from all the major magazines, all the major newspapers, illustrators, cartoonists, 
that were all prisoner of wars. Because like him, none of these guys were warriors and, you know, wanted to be in the military. And so he put together these newspapers and printed them every week, posted it on the bulletin board. And these guys, you know, baseball scores, news, things of that nature. Roger, uh, do you have any of those? Did no, any of they, them survive? That they, he packed them away. They thought that they were going to end up get falling in the hands of the Russians. They probably did because they were in Eastern Germany where he was in Stalag three, but he had a forced march where they marched him along with all these other guys, many of them dying, many, and if, and if you fell down, the, the German guards would shoot you. And he marched for eight days further and further East, trying to get away from the Americans coming in. And ultimately Patton overran these guys and they were liberated. But when, when he was finally in a position to tell me these stories, because as I mentioned to you, he told me he wanted to get buried at Arlington. And so I'm filling out an application. So I'm, I'm getting him to finally tell me these stories. He just didn't want me or my brothers to ever think that we were, that he thought he was a hero. He was just doing his job and it was pretty remarkable stuff. But to answer your question at the very beginning, I honestly, throughout my career, I, my reputation is I work pretty hard and that I basically will outwork anybody who's on the other side, which I, I will do. But whenever it's hard, whenever it's really challenging, I will think of him. He's my go-to. And I will think of how hard he worked, not only in flying and fighting, but also to survive and then to have survived getting blood out of the airplane and survived the surgeries and survived prisoner war camp and survived interrogation and survived all these things, this forced march. Anything I do is pretty minor by comparison. So very easily, probably shouldn't be here. He should never have survived. And as a result, I just feel kind of like I owe it to him to make sure that I make his sacrifice, his efforts worthwhile because every client that I help, every young lawyer that I mentor, I really feel like that's got his handprints all over it and just out of paying him homage. No, it's a great story, Roger. I mean, great family story. And two things occur to me. First of all, it should be a movie, a Nicholas Sparks movie, like the notebook where, you know, it starts off with you and your dad on his deathbed talking in his final days and you having to fill it out and asking him all the questions that the application asked that otherwise you may never have heard. Right. I have, I have, I have written, I've written this story many times in my mind. I see the visual of me walking through the halls of the convalescent home and the smell and everything. And I just, I, I, when I'm, when I'm done doing this, that's my project. And, okay. <laughs> and well, no, because it would be a good one. I mean, yeah. that would be a, a great, the other thing it occurs to me and we have to take a break and we'll be right back. But, you know, in an era today where people just practice just self-promotion and in all forms, all times of the day, look where I ate, look what I ate, look what I did, look who I met. And here's your dad who actually did something and didn't want to tell anyone about it because he didn't want to be seen as anything other than 
a guy doing his job, a job he believes anyone would have done, but we know that was not the case and not the case today. Roger, great to have you on. We're going to take this short break. Be back with more of Roger Dreyer on Bite Size Finance. Hello, this is Will Gabry, and I am an advisor with CapTrust here in the Sacramento area. I'm a busy father of four, and life comes at us fast. As my 20th year of advising clients begin, I want to take a moment and reflect on why I'm thankful to have chosen this profession. Quite simply, I get to help people. I work with clients on wealth management, income, and taxes, to name a few. But even more importantly, I get to be part of great relationships. People often interact with an advisor during life events, and I've been with clients through difficulties and joyous times. Conversations, connections, and trust built mean more to me than anything else. Working at a nationwide firm like CapTrust gives me a team of professionals to assist in all aspects of financial advising. Being part of our local office means great care and service to our clients. If you would like to start a discussion and see how we can partner with you, you can find me at captrust.com. Look for Will Gabri, G-A-B-R-I. Thank you. Back again on Bite Sized Finance, or as we like to call it by sci-fi, Kelly Brothers with you. You can find this wherever you get your favorite podcasts or three o'clock every Sunday on KFBK. And we are joined today by Roger Dreyer, who just told us an incredible story about his father, prisoner of war, 18 months, freed by Patton, should never have survived, and how that inspires Roger today. So so if I'm not if I remember when you you, you told me the story once before, Roger, so your father, you know coming out as a prisoner of war, liberated at 105 pounds, two legs that maybe they were set correctly, maybe they weren't, but they were at least got him through an eight days of a march with German soldiers with guns at his back. So he has the ability to kind of choose where he gets a little R&R so he can recover. Is that right? Well, he got, they, they sent him, they sent these kids when they got out as prison wars to the best place they could the most wonderful place, and that was San Diego. So that's where he did his rehab. And he was there at the time that the war ended in Japan. And he'd been visited by his group commander just before that, who was asking him to come back and and be his lead bombardier in Japan in the Pacific Theater. And he, it was a funny story. He said, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was get back in an airplane and fly and do more of this. But he was willing to do it because all those guys, Kelly, they do get called the greatest generation, but I think the reality is they just had a time and place where the stakes were so high that they, like the Marines that took Iwo Jima and the the kids that did things that no one else would think, you know, human beings would ever do. They just had a sense of calling of service and duty and responsibility in a time where we we don't ever feel that fortunately because of them and so they did it but he no, no the downside was it was the most risk the, our world has ever been in yeah. the upside was it offered 16 17 18 year old young men absolute clarity as to who they needed to be because if you didn't do that, you were you were you looked at yourself as almost subhuman, sub citizen. Let's say, right? right? Everybody, all the stories that come from that time frame. I mean, I'm certain there were people that weren't quite as dedicated, but the reality is that 
It's that great teamwork that makes great teams, sports teams, made a great army, made a great, you know, military was they really were supported by the people next to them. And we don't appreciate them. I didn't appreciate my father anywhere near as well as much as I should have. But that is, I mean, you, you live and you learn and you also, today, there's no doubt that he runs really hard in me and causes me to test the limits of what I can and cannot do. But I'm a lawyer because of him. I mean, he, I'll remember we got assigned, he picked his last duty assignment. He thought he was going to California, which was San Diego. And he picked Sacramento. That's how he got to Sacramento. And I remember driving across from New York, from New York to Sacramento. And we're talking because we have lots of time. He says, so what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I'm 16 years old. I don't know what I want to do. And he goes, well, I think you ought to be a lawyer. I think that you have the ability because you fight me on everything. and you have the ability to, to articulate how you feel. I think you should be a lawyer. And that's one of the few times my father ever told me to do anything that he wanted me to do. And so that always stuck with me. And, you know, through the course of time and, and finding my way, I realized that's what I wanted to do. I wanted, and I wanted not just to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a trial lawyer, which is what, what he indicated. He says, you know, you want to affect change. You want to make a difference on the planet, be a trial lawyer. This is a guy who was in the military for his entire life, but he'd had an uncle in New York who was a trial lawyer, and he always respected him and thought, this is what you ought to do. So you move out to Sacramento when you're 16. You go to Foothill High School. Is that correct? That is correct. And from there on to UC Davis, and from there to Hastings, so the 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 suggestion of becoming an attorney took root, let's say, right? Big time. You know, I, I, when I went to law school, I was, went to law school for one reason, one reason only. And I wanted to be in a courtroom and I wanted to try cases. And it just, the pathway just opened up. Opportunities presented themselves that were unique and gave me a skill level of being in a courtroom at a very young age. I worked for a magistrate when I was at Hastings. So I tried 50 criminal cases as a, a third year student, went to the district attorney's office here in Sacramento, got assigned because I was anti-capital punishment. They put me in major crimes. So every case was a murder case trying to <laughs> establish for me that I was wrong. So I worked with really extraordinary prosecutors who tried cases and they gave me opportunities. And then got an offer to leave the DA's office after a year because I was trying cases one after another. And by the what was the premier plaintiff's law firm in Sacramento at that time, Mort Friedman's firm. And I told them I didn't want to leave because I wanted to try cases. And they said, I promise you, you will try cases. And within two weeks, I was trying civil cases. And to me, when I left the DA's office, my last trial was a sex abuse case. And I put parents in the jail who had physically and sexually abused their children. And now these kids all lost their parents. And as bad as they were, they lost their parents and they were in the foster system, foster care system. I thought, you know, I do all this work and I work hard and now I'm, I'm putting people in jail. It just didn't, it didn't resonate with me. And then becoming a plaintiff's lawyer gave me the opportunity to have my own clients that I was making a difference for. 
and then just had extraordinary opportunities, cases that young lawyers weren't getting, that I was getting. Mort trusted me immediately to, to do cases that were uh, cases other people didn't want to do. And so my skill set just improved very quickly, rapidly, you know, lost cases, won cases, but was able to carve out a reputation. And then when I left him, because I tried so many cases that I just got great opportunities one after another and got, was very fortunate. And then over the course of my career, I just had the opportunity to handle many cases that are, that have really made a difference for people. There's something just about doing it, right? Not reading yeah. about it, not, but actually getting in the courtroom and just doing it. That brings a comfort level. You know, what do you think about Roger when you hear people talk about tort reform and, and what do you think about? How, how do you, when you think about the difference you've made in the lives of your clients, how, how do you reconcile the two or do you need, do you need to, do you just say, I'm playing by the rules as they are laid out and I am affecting change for the people who I choose to work for? Well, it's not really tort reform. It's kind of tort de deform. And it's, it's an urban legend that is propagated by large corporations and financial institutions and insurance companies, because we're the one thing, one entity out there that combats them and holds them accountable. And they certainly don't like it. And it costs them. Because for them, it's an empirical deal. It's a, it's a contractual obligation they have to pay off. They don't like it, they'll pay it. From the client side, it's never about the money. And I'm sure people will laugh at that, but there's no other avenue for us to kind of make things right. And the very best lawyers do what I do, Kelly, and the very worst lawyers do what I do. And all you have to do is look at the advertisements and the billboards and the people that advertise on TV to see who the worst ones are. They, they advertise and as a result, undermine what the good lawyers do, because that's the impression people have. I mean, how can you possibly feel good about somebody who's on the side of a bus? And, and in terms of that's who you want to put your, your, your whole future in the hands of that person. But there are people that do. I've even had people tell me, because it, it, I'm dumbfounded by it, candidly. Yeah. And I think yeah. one of the worst things that ever happened was the, the fact that lawyers were permitted to advertise. And the, the advertisers will tell you, no, it's a way to communicate with the public and, and let them know that they're out there. But it's what you said earlier. It's about doing it and about having the skill to do it. Those lawyers... And there are a lot of very, very good lawyers that are trial lawyers and lawyers that handle cases out there. But the ones that advertise, you know, they got to settle those cases to pay for those big advertising bills because that stuff, as you know, isn't inexpensive. So it's it's a you're right. You're right. It's your the check has to be paid. Roger, uh, we're going to take a short break. But when we come back, we want to hear about some of your favorite cases or most influential cases through the years. And we're also going to talk about the future of the legal industry at the inception of AI. More with Roger Dreyer on Bite Size Finance after this. 
I'm Father Christopher Calderon. I serve as the president of Cristo Rey High School, a work-study school. As we partner with businesses all throughout Sacramento, we want to take a moment to hear from our students as they share their experience. Hi, my name is Ramon Corona, and I work for McCarthy Building Companies, and I've enjoyed the progression that I've had in learning the entire industry and getting a taste of each of the departments. Thank you, McCarthy Building Companies, for sponsoring our school. Thank you again to all our work-study sponsors for believing in and being a part of the work we do. Hello, this is Marcel Plumto with Cap Trust in our Roseville office. I specialize in providing retirement plan advisory services to corporate fiduciaries. While we focus on many areas such as investment management and vendor oversight, it's our dedication to working closely with participants that drives my passion for the industry. Without a high level of engagement between advisors and participants, even well-designed retirement plans can fall short of their objectives. Should you have any questions on your retirement plan, please reach out. Marcel Plumto at captrust.com. Kelly Brothers here for Cap Trust. We are fiduciaries. That's an interesting word. What does that mean? That means that legally we are obligated to put your best interests over our own. Non-fiduciaries don't have that same legal situation. They can sell you something as long as it's suitable, but they don't have to put you in the best thing for you over their best interests. In other words, they can't just sell you a nice annuity with a big fat commission for themselves, even if it's not the best thing for you. We are fiduciaries. We are proud to be fiduciaries. And let me say something too about price. I am always shocked by the fact that there are people who I know will scour the internet for the cheapest flight or the cheapest ticket to a ball game, but they have no idea what they are paying for their advisor. We tell you upfront in black and white, here's what you're paying for what you're getting. Cap Trust here in Sacramento, Roseville, and Folsom. Back again on Bite Size Finance. Wherever you get your favorite podcasts, KFBK, 3 o'clock on Sundays, our guest this week, Roger Dreyer. And knowing Roger a little bit, I, I have the sense, I mean, you, you know, the, the dollar amounts are big. Uh, there are some, you could, you could just go down his bio and you'll see 34 million, 15 million, 75 million, 31 million. I mean, the, the dollar amounts won on behalf of his clients. They're big numbers. There's no getting around it. But Roger, I, just, I know that it's the change in the way institutions operate that that help you categorize or prioritize which cases in your career you feel have been the most impactful. Am I right? It's a big factor. It's nice to get paid for sure. And it's especially nice to get paid by large corporations that don't want to pay you. But it's the lasting effect that you you leave that really makes a difference. The changes in policy and practices by public entities, by by manufacturers. There's been, you know, a couple of cases thinking about with in terms of public entities. I had a case involving a young lady who died of a peanut allergy because they exposed her to it despite knowing she had a very significant allergy and it cost her her life, cost her family her, her and it cost her father his career because he suffered a very bad injury trying to save her. A horrific case, but the, the end result is not only the legacy to the family and the impact, but also the changes that were then required to be put into effect as a, res, as a condition of settlement. Uh, we, 
This firm, many times, if we have the opportunity, we will require as a term of the settlement, what we call non-monetary conditions, where the entity has to do things. They, they just assume everybody just wants money and they'll offer the money and that'll be the end of it. I had a case against the state of California up in El Dorado County, which is considered to be a very, very conservative community where the state was just allowing these chain installers to just go out and be put in positions of risk and, and uh, leaving it pretty much to them, even though Caltrans was designating where they could be and where they could do it, very unsafe. And I represented a, a guy uh, who had suffered catastrophic brain injury and they never offered anything on that case. And we ended up going to trial in El Dorado County and we got the largest award ever in El Dorado County for this 70-year-old chain installer because of, of their, their negligent conduct. And as a result, they changed how they managed the chain installers. So that's an example. And there's been, you mentioned earlier on the Mastercraft case, this is again, another conservative community that most people don't want to try cases in Butte County and very severely brain injured, beautiful, wonderful young woman. And no one realizes that in the, 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 the vessel industry, there are absolutely no regulations. These guys can do whatever they want to do in design of their boats, whatever they want to do in testing of their boats. They don't have to do anything. There's no federal regulations, no state regulations. And as a result of that case, where we were able to establish they had a product design defect, they got smoked. They got hit for more than $30 million on a case that they never offered really anything of consequence because they just thought the driver was responsible. It wasn't our fault. And we were able to show that there was a defect in how they designed it. That defect is gone now. So people are using that boat with a different design. They have no idea why, nor do they care. But now manufacturers know that they can be held accountable. So yeah, it has a big time effect on the industry. We're the ones that patrol sometimes and, and fight for people. And it's, it's, as a result, it's not, it's no, not. You're kind of the hammer. Yeah. You're kind of the hammer. I mean, there are guys who sit there and try to write regulation under the Capitol dome, but until a Roger Dreyer or someone likes them, hits them with a 30 or $75 million verdict, they might not be listening all that close to the folks under the Capitol Dome, right? Well, and you have, we've, I've tried cases against major manufacturers against Ford, where they got hit for punitive damages in our trial because it was with the E350, which is a terrible vehicle. And when you have a flat, when you'd get a flat, that thing would roll and they knew it. And a Sacramento County jury held them accountable in a big way. It was an extraordinary verdict and, and result. And it impacted their, that, that vehicle you won't, don't see on the road anymore. And we had a case in Yolo County, conservative county, against Nissan with a Spanish speaker. And it was a sudden acceleration case because of the way in which they had designed the, the handbrake and the accelerator. And the kid was a quad, and they obviously didn't think that a jury in Yolo County would care about a 28-year-old a Spanish-speaking farm worker. And it does. It impacts. When you can impact Nissan and affect what they do or Ford, 
I don't know where you get more power. Talk to me just a little bit, Roger. Take me into the room where where you get a settlement offer because obviously juries can be fickle. They can be there's such a broad range. There's a spectrum of different types of people, and I mean, how, how do you how do you sit there and evaluate a settlement offer and bring it to your clients? Because I know you've settled some great cases too, right? Sure. Well, it's it really depends upon the person. The thing that that I do with my clients is they will ask me, you know, what do you think I should do? What would you do if it was you? And I, I never, ever do that because the lawyer has so much power. I mean, if I say to a client they should take a number, they're going to take it. And that's the problem with my business is you have lawyers who sign up cases and then will settle them for far less than the value because they need to pay their bills and they need to do different things. It, here, what we do and what I've always done is I've told the client, I'm not going to let you make a mistake. I'm going to not let you screw up. But you have to make a decision as to whether you're going to accept the settlement. Three years from now, you're going to be okay, as opposed to taking the risk of going to jury trial. I've Kelly, I've tried probably 170 jury trials. And I've obviously resolved a lot more than that over the course of time. But people have made the decision that they're going to take that risk. And there have been times, I mean, I just finished a case where they were treating my client poorly on value, didn't think that she would have the hair to go to trial. She did. And over the course of the case, after trying it for two weeks, we ended up doing very well for her, much better than we ever thought, because they were coming to us because they were concerned about what was going to happen. So sometimes you got to have that courtroom. And I'm sure the jury, I felt terrible when we resolved the case because that jury, they were engaged. They were in it. I'm sure the insurance carrier was scared to death about what was going to happen. But the reality is we don't get that done unless the jury is sitting there. And that they're, and, and they can see how the jury's reacting too. Yeah, but it's, yes, absolutely. And, but it takes citizens, you know, we talk about my dad. It takes selflessness of citizens going to jury duty and saying, yes, I will do this. It's not hard to get out of jury duty. It's just not hard. But it's, it's funny, everybody that comes in, one of the first things I do is I say, okay, I want everybody to raise your hand. How, how many of you, when you got your subpoena to be here, Judy, raise your hand. I was really happy to get the subpoena. And no one raises their hand, obviously, and everybody laughs. I said, okay, but you're all here. You could have gotten out of this. And all you have to do is tell me you can't be fair or tell the judge you can't be fair and you're gone. That's your walking papers. But people get empowered. They get they realize this is bigger than them. And yes, for this community, for rule of law, to be an American, it's it's a privilege. Other than military service, this is the only time that Americans get to serve their community, really. Right. That and stepping into the voting booth every yeah, few months. Yeah, those are crucial. You know? So, Roger, uh, your wife, a highly decorated lawyer. You have two kids who are lawyers. Who's the best attorney in the Dreyer family? Well, I think that she would tell you she's the best attorney, <laughs> but she's got the easier job. She's a defense lawyer. So, of course, it's an easier job. But Why is that an easier job? It's so much easier. I mean- Defense lawyers, all they're doing, they never ask for money. They ask for you not to give money. And it's much easier to not give than to give. 
and to evaluate. It's people find a way, but I have two wonderful kids that I am certain growing up, the last thing they thought they were going to do was going to be trial lawyers because they saw their parents working, you know, constantly. Why would I want a job where I have to work that hard? And it's funny, I have four kids. The two oldest now are very jealous of the two youngest because the two youngest went out after college, worked, and after four years, both of them went back to law school, finished law school, did extraordinary in law school, and both came to work for me. And I couldn't be more flattered or happier that they both wanted to be here, but they're both going to be much better than me. Well, we'll see, Roger. We'll see. You've set the bar pretty high, I must say. Hey, we're going to talk. We have one more section here with Mr. Dreyer, and I want to talk about the future of the legal industry. What's going on in law schools, the advent of AI, where this is all going. Roger Dreyer is our guest today on Bite Size Finance. Do you have a financial plan for your pets? Protecting your loved ones, both two- and four-legged, is important, and the Sacramento SBCA can help. Join us for a complimentary estate planning seminar and learn how you can provide for your family and your pets while also creating a lifeline for animals in need. Visit sspca.org forward slash estate to view seminar dates and secure your spot for one of our upcoming virtual sessions. That's sspca.org forward slash estate. Hello, this is Scott Thomas with CapTrust in our Sacramento office. I specialize in working with local nonprofits and associations. Annually, we survey private and public nonprofit organizations across the country to better understand challenges they see in today's environment. In our more recent survey, we heard concerns about proper board governance, mission-aligned investment, and how to implement alternative investments. If you would like a copy of the survey or to discuss your organization, look me up, Scott Thomas at captrust.com. Back again, bite-sized finance. Kelly Brothers alongside Roger Dreyer today. Roger, just uh, simply an incredibly decorated attorney who's not just won a lot of money, but has affected change in all sorts of different ways through some of the verdicts that he's been able to get or some of the settlements he's been able to achieve as well. Roger, you mentioned your two kids are attorneys. What What's going on in the legal profession? I mean, because I've always thought of it as an incredibly, I, I mean, if I've, I thought of going back to law school myself, I just always thought that the lawyers I knew were incre- were upstanding, bright, measured people who could reason their way through arguments pro and con. But what is the future of the legal profession in your mind? I think the future is a constant positive future. The In this country, the rule of law plays out and we talk about it non-lawyers talk about it, but we see it happening right now in real time. We have things going on that people read about, some of the most powerful people on the planet being held accountable. And you can try to avoid it. You can lie your way out of it, attempt to, but ultimately the system has a way of grinding people to a pulp till that rule of law holds true. So I think it's going to be, it's going to be successful. It it takes such a hit with the politicalization of the judiciary, you know, with the Supreme Court and others, but in the, on the ground level, 
this, the day-to-day, it's an amazing piece of machinery, but it, it takes a lot of people working hard to make it happen. And it's changing. I mean, in my career, I've gone from carbon paper copies and a dial phone to everything is, is on the internet, to computers, to the way in which you can dictate and, and have things happen. Research is very different today than it was when I was a young lawyer. I see my kids who are both ex- extremely accomplished with technology and what they can do in moments, whereas before it would take me days. And let's uh, talk about that because we're on the advent of AI here. What does sure. that mean for well, paralegals? What does that mean for research? We're not on the advent. It's happened. And yeah. AI is as great possibilities, but it also has great potential for abuse. And we've, you know, the, the, it gets in the press about how it's been abused because that's what people want to read about. They don't want to read about the success of it and how it makes things move smoother and better. But it, the world will evolve like it does with computers and the internet and the, the legal field will evolve with it. It does allow us to do things quicker, maybe more efficiently, but it, there's a, it's just like anything. I mean, you go into a courtroom, there's no AI there. You might have some technology and things, but it still requires a person to be on their feet to think on their feet, ask the questions, and demand the responses. And a skilled lawyer in a courtroom is never going to be out of style in America. It is, it is a, an incredible part of the foundation that you have to have lawyers who are honorable, skillful, push the envelope to make things happen. They're still arguing the cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, whether they, those, guy, those guys and gals actually listen to the lawyers, I don't know. Sometimes I really wonder. But the, the process that plays out in this system that was designed by a group of guys in the seven, late 1700s, it's just, and it's still functioning. It's still working. The right to a jury trial in a civil case is a direct result of the founders of, of this country. That is the Seventh Amendment. How they they came up with this concept that we we're going to have regular people make these very weighty decisions where they can hold a major manufacturer or they can hold an individual accountable for their conduct, and we honor it. I mean, it's getting tested right now. It's being tested where... The, the system is being tested and it's being tested. <laughs> the last 250 years, it's still. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. But AI, the artificial intelligence aspect, it's going to affect, it's affecting everything. It's going to affect the law. It will get abused. But I think ultimately it's going to only enhance the process. It may put some people out of work from the standpoint that you don't need to have, you know, 50 paralegals doing the research or 50 young lawyers doing the research, but someone still has to read it. Someone still has to make sure it's right. Otherwise it's not going to work. Yeah. Why haven't we had any great courtroom movies in the last 20 years? So, I mean, real. I mean, real, I used to love courtroom movies. Yeah. I used to love Scott Turow and John Grisham and 
you know, these, these, you know, not to mention to kill a mockingbird and so, but, but it seems like there hasn't been any, and I, my, my theory is that it all ended when we got these, you know, crap judges on TV, the, just the daytime show where they're just filling time and kind of cheapened the whole idea. Well, I think I don't watch those shows, although I know there is a substantial portion of the population that might. I don't know that it's that, Kelly. I think Hollywood believes that people want to see the Marvel characters. They want to see car crashes and gunfights and The Rock and things of that nature where they can check out from society or or from reality for a couple of hours. Courtroom movies require you to be engaged like a juror because you are as an audience. You, you think of a movie like The Civil Action with that dealt with, you know, a true story. It was a great movie, but that's not really what Hollywood is putting out. So unless Steven Spielberg wants to do a, a movie that deals with the courtroom, but there, there are so many really, really good movies that deal with the courtroom because it's drama. People do like it. I mean, look at all the courtroom shows that have been on TV. No, I know. Yeah, there's plenty on TV. I'm just wondered why, you know, a few good men. I mean, there's 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 some great courtroom dramas, and they seem to have. But somewhat- it's, it's like it's like you can't try a case in two hours. Okay, so that's also part of the challenge to tell the story in a short period of time. I mean, I've tried the Raiders case. I tried the Raiders case. That was six months, five days a week. That's the closest I've ever come to dying, you know, just killing myself literally because of the, of the demands of the, of the court and the trial. But we had jurors. Remind us of that case. You were, you- I represented Al Davis and the Oakland Raiders against the Oakland Coliseum and the, the public entity down there that ran the Coliseum. It was a fraud trial where Al Davis, we took the position that that Al Davis was fooled by five guys that got him to come from L.A. back to Oakland with guarantees of sellouts and things of that nature and all about making money, which was Al's number one thing. Not getting the best football team, but actually making the most money. But the, the reason I bring it up is only that that's a case that was a very compelling case. It defined my career in the sense that I had to do things that I never done before, both physically and mentally. My skill set, you know, when you go try a case five days a week for six months and you're trying it against reputed to be one of the best trial lawyers on the planet Earth, Jim Brosnahan, you have to be ready to go every day, all day long. And it's compelling drama to me. I mean, the paper was covered nationally. Everybody was watching it. So you can't put that in a movie. It's no, just, no, it's no, that's too, too much. Long. Yeah. So listen, we, we have to wrap it up here, but we're yeah. going to wrap it up as a movie would because you told the story of your father. So let's let's set the final scene of the movie, and that is the night your dad passed, what happened? Well, so this, again, is before the Internet. So everything's filled out and then mailed. So I, after visiting with him over the past two weeks of his life, getting and just going through these stories. And I stopped writing stuff down because we'd get into the story and he'd get into the story. So I filled it out, sent it into the government and I got back a written document because nothing was over a computer because we didn't have them. And I brought it into it and it said, you know, you're in Arlington 
and basically it was your dad's in, call this number when he dies, we'll take care of everything. I mean, it was like a paragraph. And I, so I came, I went to him that night and after work and I said, Hey, we got the word you're in no reaction other than just the nodding of his head. Just of, yep. I knew that. And he passed that night because he obviously was just waiting to hear the word so that he could then pass away. And I mean, I made that phone call, nothing, everything that happened, they did everything. I didn't have to do anything. And the, the service of my dad being taken by horse-drawn carriage to a location, then the eight branches of the military marching his coffin out to his grave, which was right across from the Pentagon where he worked for three years following the war. He, he had an integral role in going from the Army Air Corps to the United States Air Force. They kept him in and they teased him with his journalism background that he'd be able to be involved in that, which he was. But in just putting him in the ground, 21-gun salute, having a military officer and a priest hand my mother the flag from a grateful nation. Just roll, roll credits, roll yeah, credits right was, there. That's what you do. That, I mean, really, that is, that's the end right there. Story. That is fantastic, Roger. Great story. And uh, yeah, as if Arlington was going to turn down someone who had served his country as your, as your dad did. But Roger, thanks to your dad. Thanks to you. And we really appreciate you sharing your stories with us today. Kelly, thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to get to be able to talk about him and be able to also address the importance of the field and trial work. It's a unique and wonderful opportunity. I appreciate it very much. Roger Dreyer, this week's guest on Bite Sized Finance. Thanks for listening to Buy Sci-Fi, Bite Sized Finance. If you liked what we served up today, please give us your rating, subscribe, and by all means, share. Music for the show produced locally by Kitty O'Neill and her band, Skylar's Pool. Under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, this podcast is defined as an advertisement and includes an uncompensated testimonial by a cap trust client. Please be advised that clients' experiences as described in this podcast do not necessarily represent the experience of other clients. The discussions and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and are subject to change without notice. This podcast is intended to be informational only. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation, investment advice, or recommendation to invest in any securities. CapTrust Financial Advisors is an investment advisor registered under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. CapTrust does not render legal advice. Thanks again for listening to Bite Size Finance. I'm Kelly Brothers of CapTrust, and I get the question a lot. How do you pick an advisor that is right for you? I always suggest interview a few people. Go talk to a few people. The truth is, most people will spend more time planning their next weekend getaway than they will actually finding the advisor that is right for them, their family, the next generation, an advisor that may serve you for decades or a generation or more. It's an important decision. Sit down and talk to people. See if you feel comfortable talking to people. After all, this is all about the conversation, mitigating risks, and preparing for the future. Cap Trust, here in Sacramento, Roseville, and Folsom.